Hello and welcome to Office Hours, the show that brings you the latest research from UCI professors in STEM, the social sciences, the humanities, art, and more. I'm Sibel Kaler and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Today we hear from Dr. John Billemek, a psychologist and professor at the UCI School of Medicine who studies health disparities in America and runs a lab dedicated to this purpose. He is also a director for the Program in Medical Education for the Latino Community at the UCI Medical School, as well as a new program, Leadership Education to Advance Diversity, African, Black, and Caribbean. Today, we sit down with him to discuss issues in the American healthcare system. Thank you for being on the show. Of course, yeah, my pleasure. To start off, you run the Helios Lab at UC Irvine, which does research to produce a more equitable healthcare system in America. What are you working on right now in that lab? Yeah, so so Helios, I think, is is a really exciting program that we have in the School of Medicine. Basically, we have a dual mission, so we're very interested in promoting a more equitable healthcare system, and and we do it by doing research studies that relate to why doesn't the healthcare system work better for everybody? But a big part of what we do also is really invest in kind of the next generation of healthcare professionals. And basically again and again, and all the research we do about, you know, the holes in our healthcare system, the gaps relate to just a lack of representation in our healthcare system, kind of matching the, the, the demographics of our state as a whole. And so we really focus on in involving and supporting students' professional development people that have a, a real heart for health equity, want to become health professionals to try to give them tools to be successful at the next level. What are some of the most memorable things you've studied in the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's been exciting. So basically with these Helios Lab students, so it's a group of about 20 undergraduates. Most of them, most of them are first gen students. Most of them speak a language in addition to English and all of them are just really interested in health equity. And so we started just, um, you know, we were very interested in this question um, related to like kind of kind of why is it that people don't just naturally do the things that make them more healthy? And we I started very interested in why aren't people eating healthier? Why aren't people exercising more? And and I started moving into kind of what's one of the simplest things that you can do for your health when you have a chronic health condition. And that's basically like taking medication that's prescribed. Like there's really good evidence for these medications prolonging life, delaying complications and all this stuff. And it's a lot easier just to take a pill before bed than it is to like, you know, train for a 10K or something or, or, or become vegetarian or, you know, or lose, a, lose 50 pounds or something. So I always wondered, like, if we can't even help people feel comfortable taking one pill per day, how are we going to like encourage people to change their entire lifestyle? So we got really interested in this and, and we did a lot of focus groups with patients at um, UC Irvine's Family Health Center in Santa Ana which is kind of like a safety net clinic that UCI runs. It's, it's one of the few med schools that actually runs a community health center of this type. And we just got to speak with a lot of Spanish speaking patients that have had uncontrolled diabetes for years. And I thought they were gonna tell us like, yeah, the medicine's too expensive or, oh man, I just keep forgetting to take it or it's too complicated or whatever. And most people were saying like, you know what? I just don't know if this is really gonna be good for me. And I just don't know if I really need this. And I just don't know, like, is this gonna do some kind of harm that my doctor's not telling me about? And we'd ask, well, like, yeah, why don't you just ask your doctor about that stuff? And people would say like, well, I just feel bad asking him, like, cause this is what they say I'm supposed to do. Or I worry that maybe my doctors make more money the more pills they give me. So are they really gonna give me the straight answer? So there was this really interesting hesitancy that had nothing to do with how much the medicine costs or 
how complicated the regimen was. And I just thought like, oh man, like we have to learn more about that. And kind of most of our work since those early focus groups is focused on different aspects of that issue of the hesitancy that people have in accessing treatments and services that could improve their health. Right. That obviously being a huge issue. What do you believe are some of the other biggest issues with our healthcare system? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole thing boils down to just the disconnect between how much we spend on healthcare in the United States and the kinds of health outcomes that we get. And, um, you know, and, it, and it's, it's uh, and I think it, it has a lot to do with the fact that all of the spending is on uh, medical services. You know, we have kind of a market-based healthcare system uh, where people are very willing to, to spend money on, on healthcare services, uh, even more so because insurance companies end up paying for it. And so it becomes kind of opaque, like, what am I really paying for? What am I going to have to pay for? Whereas um, prevention, so much of that requires a lot of government investment in programs like kind of, um, you know, food assistance and paid family leave and um, benefits for, for retirees and, and um, you know, free education, like forgiving student loans, all those kinds of things really do, I think, build up the health of a community. And other countries, again, I used to believe that the U.S. spent the most on health of any country, but, but more than half of the other wealthy countries in the world, if you combine what do they spend on healthcare plus what do they spend on sort of social services, spend considerably more than we do. And as a result, have considerably better health outcomes. Ours are among the worst in terms of life expectancy, maternal mortality, low birth weight, uh, you know, childbirths, um, obesity, uh, diabetes mortality, all, all these things like we die at much higher rates and are suffer from much higher rates than people in other countries. You start to think that those other kinds of investments matter a lot more. Right. And you mentioned um, that you've done a lot of research on people with chronic diseases and how their health outcomes vary. Did you notice any trends with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because I think the thing is, so even though like I believe that doing the things upstream matter the most, like I think of this uh, story that people tell of like, imagine uh, a person that lives in a village next to a river. And then one day he sees like a child floating by in the river that might be drowning. So he jumps in and saves the kid. And then another kid comes by and he jumps in and saves that kid. And then two more kids. And then he finally looks upstream and sees like, oh man, there's like someone pushing kids in the river. Maybe I should just go stop that guy. But the problem is it's like, there's still kids being pushed. Like you still need someone that can jump in, right? That's can save the kids or that can, that can be there for people in a moment of crisis. So I think chronic disease management, like we'd love to eradicate these kinds of diseases by doing better upstream stuff. But, you know, I feel the need that, that we need to address it more now. And, uh, and so I think that's been important because a lot of people that think about like the public health issues really want to focus on the upstream things. And I'm glad they do because uh, there's this huge, huge impact in that. But uh, I'm trying to focus more on the healthcare system level. And one thing that I see is that that hesitancy that I mentioned to act, to take medicine or to access services or to sign up for a program or something like that, that hesitancy tends to really get magnified during times of acute uh, stress. So if you're in a period of like experiencing food insecurity recently, or if you live in a neighborhood where you're concerned about how safe it is to live in my neighborhood, or if you um, live in a neighborhood where um, there's a lot of socioeconomic disadvantage, you know, any of those things are kind of like don't have shouldn't have much to do with the healthcare system. But if you measure people's attitudes towards utilizing healthcare resources, there's much more reluctance. There's much more concern about medications having side effects, or there's much more concern about is there some uh, drawback or hidden uh, trick or uh, you know catch to me signing up for this kind of benefit. 
And so I just I have found that um, fascinating, important, and, and but also disturbing. That I think so much of what we have to do is how do we rebuild some level of trust? How do we help address hesitancy in folks whose hesitancy is magnified at the moment that they could maybe benefit the most from resources? What do you think are some ways that we could try to address that? Yeah, I mean, I think like uh, you know. Um, so again, I'm, I'm in the School of Medicine and I'm involved uh, in with both with Helios, which is kind of on the undergraduate side, and then a program called the Program in Medical Education for Latino Communities, Prime LC, and, and a, another program called LEAD ABC, which focuses on African, uh, Black, and Caribbean communities. And in all these cases, we're really focused on like bringing people into the health professions that have some kind of valuable lived experience. Like it's completely incredible to know the stories of some of the students that have gone through these programs. And we've had people that have um, experienced homelessness during their childhood who have been the translator uh, for their mother, like the, the interpreter, a, a young boy being the interpreter for his mom at her at her uh, women's health visits. Um, you know, people that have had, you know, family members deported or themselves have uh, documentation status that puts them at risk of different things. and. You know, people with lived experiences, challenges in their life have a lot more empathy. And I just think empathy goes a long way in addressing hesitancy because you could just say, you know, well, just 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 take the pills. It's good for you. Trust me. You know what I mean? And some people go to the point of saying, listen, dummy. I always say avoid listen, dummy arguments with with people. Um, but people almost want to say, listen, dummy, take the medicine. And, and I think um, that that doesn't reach anybody. And so I feel like um Building a workforce, building a, a work, we call a workforce of health professionals that are more empathetic, and I think some of the most empathetic people are those that have gone through challenging circumstances themselves, uh, is one of the most important things you can do. But then, why do you think there aren't more people like that? Because people that have gone through more adversity are also told again and again, like, "Yeah, you'll never make it. Like, you can't be a doctor. Are you crazy? You don't have the grades. You, you came in as a." As a freshman and you've got a B in chemistry or, you know, like you'll never make it or something like that. And it's like you get these very discouraging messages from people uh, and also just lots of other just kind of other pressing issues to help with within your own family sometimes. And don't believe you have a chance of doing it. So uh, we, we think by in injecting and inspiring and basically following the energy and the strength of students that have these kinds of stories, um, they become the next health professionals that will have the empathy to help address some of these issues. So when you're living in poverty, what kind of impact does that have on your health? Yeah, it's, uh, it, I mean, it's profound. So, I mean, I think the first thing is that uh, stress in and of itself, like the experience of, and then we've all felt stress at different levels. The experience of stress has a number of just direct biological effects, suppressing your immune system, affecting your cardiovascular system, you know, so that's already pretty rough, you know? Um, and then, and then of course, uh, many people cope with stress through behaviors that aren't necessarily ideal for your cardiovascular well-being either. But the, the interesting thing about these socioeconomic stressors that people experience in poverty is that they're never like one isolated thing. Um, we, what we see what we call spillover effects that like, so just take this example. If you, if you look at people that have experienced food insecurity in the last couple of months, so people that have just had trouble, maybe even had, didn't, technically, uh, well, people that basically struggled to or failed to put food on the table because of financial considerations. People that are food insecure or have recently been food insecure um, aren't only hungry, but, and they're not only facing other prob problems like having trouble paying their rent or for their utilities or the cell phone bill. They're also just much more likely to have experienced other things that might've propelled them into food insecurity 
or were made worse by being food insecure. You're much more likely to have recently lost a job. That should be no surprise. But you're also much more likely to have recently been thrust into a new caregiving situation, either of an adult relative or a partner or a child. Um, uh, You're about four times more likely to have been recently put into one of those situations if you um, are recently food insecure. You're much more likely to be experiencing symptoms of depression. You're much more likely to be experiencing a recent separation um, in a uh, romantic relationship, you know, which which could, could can be, you know, um, you, you, yeah. So there's just many many things that tend to kind of co-occur with the experience of food insecurity, and at the exact same time that's happening, the thing I mentioned before is happening that your hesitancy to accept, um, uh, well, first of all, it becomes harder to access opportunities to um, to to get help, right? And that the hesitancy to make use of some of those um, resources and services also can sometimes be greater. So it's a very complicated, multifactorial, multifaceted thing. And so when we're dealing with food insecurity, like, of course, we have to work on getting people access to food. It's just that we can't stop there, you know, that we have to kind of look at, like, what are those complex spillover effects and what are the other ways we can um, be of support to people in those challenging situations? I think it's really interesting that you mentioned how some people, you know, who are especially dealing with poverty are having trouble trusting the medical professionals. And it's interesting to me that we've also seen this, or at least the stereotype is like white, kind of wealthy, middle-class anti-vaxxers as well. Well, why do you think the anti-vax movement is so strong right now? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, so I think, I think it's interesting. I mean, we're just, we are living just in a period of just unprecedented polarization and the polarization kind of sorts out, not just along political party affiliation, but, uh, but also like, and, and not just across geography, right? We see, it's not really just red state, blue state. It's mostly urban rural. We see a lot of these divides, but then we also see it among like authority figures and kind of the more highly educated parts of the population versus those with, with less formal education. And I think there's a lot of people that just feel kind of separated from just not like connected with the kind of the the powers that be or the authorities that tend to make decisions on what should be recommended and uh, they, they, they you know so they find sources of stress in that and I, and I think though that we can re- we really do a lot to increase polarization in the way that we speak with people so I've, I've been really trying to use the language um, vaccine hesitancy instead of anti I said anti-vaxxer for years you know I used to call it that and I know many parents though that they're not like anti-vaccine they're they're anti autism risk or they're anti, you know, so, so they're, there's something else that they're fighting. There's something else that they want. They want something for their kid. Now we know it's very, very clear that the scientific evidence is that vaccines do not cause autism, but the harm that's done by that information, that misinformation being out there for so long, you can understand why that would really make people scared and really want to be very, very sure about it. So trying to focus on not like what the person's opposed to, but what are they for? What are their values? I think is an important aspect of this. It will be very interesting to see what happens in the context of the COVID vaccines as they come out. Will the similar mindset of hesitancy for vaccines, will that will that continue to play out? Yeah, that's a really great point that, you know, the conversation needs to be less, how dare you not believe in vaccines and more, okay, let's let's address these concerns. Yeah, I, I think so. And that's easier said than done. And, and, it, and it's oftentimes not the first conversation where that can occur. And I just think that's why empathy is so powerful that sometimes the conversation you're the person isn't ready to hear it the first time some you know sometimes like 
you know, I have a, a daughter and she, she was born with Down syndrome and, uh, and she's wonderful, doing really well. But there are a lot of challenges that come with that. And, and like when you get that news at the time, like when your child is born, it's very like, I mean, it's, it's really just turns your world upside down. Something you just, you'd never even imagine. Uh, we had no indication that that was, was going to be the case for her. And for us, we just like immediately heard that like, yeah, but there's these other, there's these groups of parents that get together who like find a lot of benefit and just, you know, finding common ground and connecting. And like my, my spouse and I were so ready for that. Like we connected to it right away. And so it was so good for us. Then whenever we met someone else who had a child that was born with Down syndrome, we're like, oh, here's what you got to do. <laughs> this is it, baby. Like, just, you know, go to this group. It's great. We'll have food. Like, the, the, there's these little, these grannies that hold your baby in a rocking chair while you're upstairs in a, in a uh, support group and great, like, cheese and crackers and amazing coffee. Like, it was just amazing. And the conversation was always amazing. I thought, who could not want this? Well, a lot of people I ended up talking to who like, weren't really ready for that. It wasn't something that they're ready to do. And so sometimes you just have to kind of be there and be present, develop longitudinal relationships with patients and families through empathy, come to understand when somebody's ready to consider something new. So I, th I think that's that's important is, is being a little bit patient, you know, uh, goes a long way. Very well said. We see a lot of doctors in America that are giving a different quality of care to racial minorities, transgender people, and I also heard people who are obese. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I know it, it's, I mean, I think all that stuff happens for sure, you know, and, and, it, and it's, it's really challenging. So there's a very important kind of movement. It's almost like a discipline within, within a lot of the work that we do in different fields called, called allyship, you know, which is sort of like, how do you, so I talked about like, it's great if we can have more people enter the healthcare workforce that have lived experiences and things like that. But, but people tell me all the time, members of communities of color tell me all the time, like, that's a real problem if the only person that can like give good care to a Latinx individual or a transgender individual is someone who they themselves is Latinx or transgender. Like that is that is its own astronomical problem. And um, and and I, and I said, well, yeah, but uh, yeah. So, yeah, that was very important for me to hear. And I think just the ways that we try to learn how to be uh, allies to others are important. And, and one really important part of that is just coming to terms with in, in implicit biases that we have kind of kind of just understanding that. There's just certain times that we react to a person differently based on on how they look, but then also kind of being prepared to lean against that bias in a productive way. So like in transgender medicine, there's a lot of things that we can do um, to help uh, transgender patients feel more comfortable, ways that we talk about body parts, ways that, of course, that we use pronouns, that we do not use someone's dead name. You know, there's these things that, that like we can do that are just like, hey, it's just part of the, the lingo of taking good care of being a good provider to or a good, you know, care professional to a, a transgender patient. So I think we see that we, we see that all the time. And I and I just think trying to, again trying trying to focus on empathy to recognize when recognizing that sometimes it takes a little more time to build a trusting relationship. And sometimes it means that you you do say the wrong thing or you do make a mistake. And rather than focusing on like oh man it's like a trap like I just I got you know. I said the wrong thing and they, they almost lured me into this trap, you know, instead to recognize that like, no, no, it's just that you're learning, you're learning language the way that like we, we all did growing up, right? We learned different things that we could, could, could or could not say to different people. It's just that many of us growing up didn't have a full perspective of, of all the kinds of people there are, you know? So be kind of uh, get, treating yourself with some grace, trying again, dusting yourself off and then, and then just being very grateful for the grace of others that um, uh, can, uh, can forgive us and give us another chance when, when maybe we don't say the right thing. 
Absolutely. So what kind of changes would you like to see from the health insurance industry? Yeah, I mean, I think like, so we we have a long way to go with the health insurance industry. I mean, I think the Affordable Care Act, like everyone focuses on the fact that the Affordable Care Act increased access to health insurance to many, many people, mostly through expanding the income limit or the income restrictions for when you're eligible for Medicaid, which we call Medi-Cal here in California. So people really focus on that and the uninsured rate just plummeted, you know, during, you know, because of, because of um, the Affordable Care Act. So that we were very successful in that, but a lot of people fairly said like, yeah, but isn't health insurance also not so great the way it is? And it's like, yeah, really it's not, you know, we have these uh, increasing costs. Um, we had, we had where things were like payment was not linked to the, the, outcomes that we achieve, but more about just the volume of services, like the more, you know, procedures you could do, you just make more money, whether it was well done or not. And not just that, whether or not you could have presented the procedure or not, there was no money in prevention. And so some of the coolest parts of the Affordable Care Act that actually were not, have not been challenged much, even during a time when there was a lot of opposition to the Affordable Care Act, um, relate to um, creating what they call pay for performance. So instead of being focused on volume, we focus on the value of the healthcare that's provided, and that there's some interesting funding mechanisms within the Affordable Care Act that allow even hospitals to contribute to community health benefits and, uh, and, and actually require it to happen. I just feel like there's all these interesting secret pathways that we can kind of, I think, understand uh, and, and uh, make use of to increase sort of, to kind of sneakily increase that social spending I was talking about even though it's not always politically savory. And, but I, so I think what should happen next, I just think we should try to make those things a little bit less covert, a little bit more explicit in what we're doing. And I, I think that could go a long way to, um, to, to making health insurance more effective. Right. And so obviously we're sitting here on a virtual call. How have these health disparities played out in the pandemic that we're in the middle of? Yeah. Well, I think one of the real cool things that we got to work on at, as the Helios Lab is... Um, you know, so we basically have projects that, that mostly involve in-person work, like in the clinic or in community settings. And that had to shut down like pretty quick, like in March, you know, uh, or at least had to kind of go on pause. We were able to resume some of that work lately with, with some precautions that we can take. But at that time, like we're this tight group and a big fo function of Helios is like, hey, let's kind of have like a tight cohort of people that you continue to stay connected to as you go on to med school or nursing school or whatever. And, uh, and we thought like, man, like everyone feels so isolated and no one could come back to the campus all kind of abruptly. Um, and so we came up with a project that we called the Unity Project. Uh, and the Unity Project basically was, it was focused on interviewing um, uh, members of the Orange County community. And because a lot of our other projects really focused on the health of, of Latinx communities and among Spanish speaking residents in Orange County, we did, I don't know, I think something like 46 interviews with residents of Orange County, mostly Spanish speaking um, individuals that access health services at, at our community health center, um, but also health workers, community leaders that are involved in the nonprofit sector. And um, we really learned a lot from those interviews. Um, you know, I think like a lot of the things that you heard a lot about in the news are, are definitely true. We definitely found that like testing was slow to come to central Orange County where a lot of people of color live and people with uh, lower household incomes live. We found that not only are those areas denser in population, but they also just have much higher rates of crowding so that the people live in households with six or more members in the household. We also know that people that live in those communities are also less likely to have jobs. And there's good national data that shows this, less likely to have a job that they could do from home. And so they either had to like 
go into work if that was allowed or face these economic consequences. So imagine you have to go into a job, uh, work at that job and then come back uh, and you're in a household where there's a lot of people living in a small space. So you can see that it's just, again, we talked about spillover effects, thing after thing after thing, like really just added to our, um, you know, how quickly it spread through these communities. And, uh, but I think the thing that really struck me the most, uh, I, I, one thing really struck me in those interviews and um, I can share, you know, a link to, to, to a report we did to, with, if you want to shout to with the listeners, but um, is that we found that like, there was this idea that, you know, there's a lot of parts of our kind of social safety net that um, became um, hindered by the pandemic because you think of like, you know, like school teachers, they see, they would see their kids come in every day. So if there was a kid that's like, not eating at lunch or feels anxious or had bruises on his body or her body, the teacher could see that and do something about that. Or, you know, uh, one person we spoke with is a social worker that works with a lot of uh, women that, that, are, that are survivors of domestic violence, um, sometimes ongoing domestic violence. Like when I saw my clients come, when she said, she said, when I saw my clients come in, like I could kind of see, yeah, like, were there new bruises? What, how, how was she doing? Was she more withdrawn? Things like that. And the ability for all these people that just would kind of see us in public, that are sort of like someone that could kind of like, you know, help kind of just know, like, is everything okay? That kind of went away, you know what I mean? And so we're, we're, there's a lot of worry that like isolation isn't only about being lonely, which is a horrible thing to experience, but it also means fewer eyes are on you. There's fewer people that can kind of see if you're in a situation that's deteriorating or challenging and finding ways to kind of increase touch points with folks in the community um, is so critical. And, uh, and I just, so I think that's sort of a, Kind of understated part of this of this uh, crisis. And do you think that those kind of issues will continue to play out with COVID nineteen even after we start distributing the vaccine? Yeah, I'm af- I'm afraid so. You know, I think there's just there's a lot of factors conspiring at once that I think will slow the availability of the vaccine to communities of color and to uh, people with lower household incomes and things like that. There'll also be a certain level of hesitancy to access those uh, vaccines. I think by a number of people. And then, and then, and then, basically, largely because of economic, like sort of socioeconomic strata that exists, uh, distance that exists, uh, linguistic barriers. Like a, a lot of folks from communities of color, especially those where, where well, it, it really of all communities of color, don't always have a direct line for advocacy. And so, I think that's one thing that we're trying to focus on in Helios and in Prime LC and in Lead ABC. These programs is like, what can we do to kind of help, like, lift up the voice of some of those. Uh, some of those communities. And we just have wonderful partners and friends in the nonprofit sector that are doing the same. And um, I, I will say I'm completely blown away at how, remember I said testing in Central Orange County lagged behind the rest of the state. That's before some of the nonprofit groups like Latino Health Access, Ocapica, which is a uh, advocacy group focused on Asian American residents of the county, but also people from UC Irvine and from other um, you know, institutions got together and said, like, no, 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 this has to happen. And this can't just happen at like government buildings. We need to do this at schools. We need to do this at a place where, where people in our community feel comfortable. That voice came through really loud and clear and drastically changed the ability for people to access testing. I'm really excited to see how those same voices are lifted up once the vaccine comes around. And, and I think now we have kind of an infrastructure in place that we can see those voices heard. So I think it's going to be a very powerful, powerful time, but it will not happen by itself. It's going to take that same level of advocacy and activism for this vaccine to get to everyone who needs it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This has been so informative. This is a great pleasure. Thank you for, for inviting me on and uh, yeah, uh, have a very happy um, uh, Thanksgiving and holiday season. You too. 
That was Dr. John Billemek, a professor at the UCI Medical School who studies health disparities and is a director for the Program in Medical Education for the Latino Community and the Leadership Education to Advance Diversity, African, Black, and Caribbean at the medical school, as well as running the Helios Lab at UC Irvine. If you are passionate about this cause, I encourage you to donate to the Helios Lab, the Latino Health Access, or any other local health nonprofits. I'm Sibel Kaler, and this has been Office Hours on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. To find out more, please go to my website at bit.ly slash officehourskuci, where you can listen to our past episodes and find out more information, or find us on kuci.org. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Stay safe and be kind to each other out there. If your skin could talk, would you listen? As your skin, I forgive you. I forgive you for damaging me before prom, on spring break, and at tanning salons. But if you continue to tan, I hope you can forgive me. Forgive me when I start developing wrinkles and age spots. Forgive me if I develop melanoma when you're only 22. Protect your skin from the second most common cancer in young women 15 to 29 years old. Learn more at spotskincancer.org. A message from the American Academy of Dermatology.